Each year at Christmas, we hear a lot of the same scriptures. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Or glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward all people. But what about, I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. That's Psalm 131, and it may become your new favorite Christmas verse. It's Christmas time here inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss how none of us can walk the journey alone. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, recites Psalm 131 and unveils its powerful imagery of the Incarnation. Then we travel to 1749, when on Christmas morning, Swedenborg's first volume of Secrets of Heaven was getting a shout-out on the front page of the London Daily Advertiser, This Week in History. Hey, Curtis. Hey, Chelsea. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you here. And so this past week's topic on the YouTube channel, we were exploring how to allow angels to change your life. And that was a fun episode. Yes. And as we often do, you and I can have some fun responding to the reflection question of this week. And so the question this week was, can you recall a time when you felt that you received some kind of message or guidance that led to positive changes in your life. Wow. Message I know, it's a big one. <laughs> or guidance that led to positive changes in my life. Yeah, I would say so. And I'm just trying, like, I, I feel like I get, when you I first hear the question, I think of something big. Like mm-hmm. in The Lion King, when he goes and sees Rafiki the monkey, and I don't really remember what he does, but it, it's a <laughs> bit pivotal point in his life, right? Yes. But uh, really, I get like a lot of small pieces of advice um, that change my life in small ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I had uh, my therapist tell me, put your brain in the closet, which is nice. like. <laughs> at, at certain times, you if you overthink things, you're complicating them. Yeah, which that yeah. definitely returned to me a few times. Like, oh yeah, all right, get brain in the closet, brain in the closet. Right. Um, yeah, and then um, okay. Well, that's my first one. Let me think of well, my that, next I one. Mean, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's a great one. It actually reminds me of a concept that Peter Rhodes talks about in his book, um, Observing Spirit, where he says like you you get to know your lower mind like your uh the outer mind and your inner the inner like higher spiritual mind like the earthly mind and the spiritual mind and it's like your earthly mind is good at you know paying attention to time and space and like if we let the earthly mind do too much of our spiritual work it just it can't do that job you know like it's good at just taking care of the natural world stuff so sort of let it take care of its thing but don't give it you know authority over the the spiritual mind and and that kind of reminds me of what you're describing of like yep sometimes you just need to like okay you go do the earthly mind thing over here while i'm going to be taking care about you know taking care of what really matters on a spiritual level here without your input thanks very much <laughs> earthly mind has such a terrible track record but it's <laughs> yes. so interested in giving its opinion anyway 
Yes, right, because it's like, I can do it. (laughs) It's like, hey, you told me to worry about all these things and none of them happened. And now you're telling me to worry about this thing. Like what, who, where do you get your funding? Yes, it's very defensive. It wants to do so much for us, but it's like, no, you just can't do this, this other, the the higher spiritual level jobs. Um, Yeah, well, something that came to my mind with this question, and then I'll, I'm interested in hearing any more that came to your mind. um, But I was thinking of like, I kind of think that in a lot of ways, it's often like negative experiences or, you know, the dynamic of how like, our body will start to ache in a certain way when it needs attention, you know? And so I kind of feel like that happens in my life all the time where sort of things being out of whack or things feeling intense, like having kind of the the stronger emotional reactions to things and stuff is kind of what I've learned to tip me off to like, oh, something needs to change here. And then I can address it. And it does leave, lead to positive changes in my life, even though the actual experience of like the, those presenting symptoms are so often a negative experience. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, it's kind of gets into the way that pain is useful because it alerts us to what needs addressing. Um, so, yeah. And changing the way that you interact with those signals Mm -hmm. or what they, what they mean to you. Yeah. And okay. So one, one last one. And these are all like, these are all things I just w- was told really recently. Cause I think we get this sort of advice all the time, but sure, yeah. the, the advice was, you know, when we're younger and, you know, depending on whatever, this is always ap- applicable, no matter how old you are. When we were younger, we thought, uh, you know, I'm going to be this perfect kind of person X, but now you've got to realize, okay, this is the kind of person I am. How do I work with that? Mm-hmm. And this, and th- thinking particularly in terms of like, how do you be productive? How do you keep your life in order? And how do you approach work and problem solving and relationships? Instead of saying, this is how I should just realize, look, I'm yes. kind of flighty about this sort of stuff. And if I don't have energy for this, I can't make myself do it. So rather than try to force something that's not going to really probably change because too much part of how I'm wired, how can I rearrange the other pieces to, to take advantage of what my strengths are and, and sort of buttress up my, or work with my weaknesses? Which it, to me, I don't know if it sounds very tangible, but to me that's very tangible and very, uh, very profound. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you've got you've got some good messengers in your life. <laughs> I, kn- I know because I, I need messages. So I'm basically asking yeah. everybody, okay, what do right. I do? And man, other people's, messages are better than what you get when you're just thinking i know right we do we need each other and that's and i mean so that's what's fun about even sharing these kinds of responses to these reflection questions because i learn so much when i read other people's responses and um and i love what you were just saying because that is it really speaks to me of of acceptance you know we spend so much of our time being agitated is just kind of wishing things weren't the way that they are. But if you kind of like let that go or, you know, really put that aside, then you can just be like, okay, this is the way things are right now. Now what we now what can we do? You know, and you don't have to have that burden of, or there's sort of a double burden there of like something needs to change. And I don't feel great about the fact that I'm, that things are the way they are, you know, acceptance that is, is really such a freeing 
shift to have happen around, you know, anything that's going on. And I couldn't do any of those shifts that you're talking about without Swedenborg's advice, because those all occur like my ability to, okay, this is how it is. I'll just work with it. Put the brain in the closet. The only reason Mm -hmm. those are good advice is because you believe in the larger current of divine providence and that God is going to take me to the perfect end game. And otherwise, you'd be like, well, no, I'm not going to let go of any control or work with this because it's I've got to be planning for my destination, wherever yes, that is. Yes, but if totally. you know and believe on a certain level, which I definitely do, that the destination is being managed by your agent, the divine, then yeah. it allows you to let go of stuff like that. So you've got to have that advice in there as well. That's really That's such a great point because it's so true that to have that framework set up then that gives you that liberty to to go through this change and have think about things in a different way because if you don't have that then yeah you're just always thinking that it's up to you or you're in control and there isn't this larger uh you know belonging or however you want to describe it that that you know the divine and providence is taking care of you in your life so um that's great well it's always great getting to you know, share about these things and hear hear your thoughts, Curtis. And so this is actually our last reflection question of the year because everything in this show wow. is the last uh, Inside Off the Left Eye podcast episode for the year. And so now we're going to be having a Christmas break, but I want to assure people that, of course, we'll be back in the new year. And on January 11th, we'll have a brand new Swedenborg and Life show ready for you all wrapped up with a bow and it is going to be CEOs reveal the spiritual component of running a successful business. So that'll be a really fun way to launch into the new year. And um, so I hope people will, you know, have a great holiday break. And um, but now in the meantime, Curtis, will you stick around now to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history at the end of the show? Yes, I'll be charging up my power. Okay, good. (laughs) All right, thanks. Okay, it is time for the NCE Spotlight, our chance to visit the virtual desk of the NCE and, or rather visit the desk of the NCE virtually, I should say, um, and see what insights and discoveries are happening there. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here again. And what what do you have for us this week? Well, this is um, uh, my thoughts are about Christmas for obvious reasons. Yes, very nice. And uh, there are many passages in the Old Testament that have prophecies about Christmas uh, that we, you know, may hear sometimes at this time of year. Yeah, right. And then there are also the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke. But uh, what came to mind was a, a a psalm that I fell in love with for very different reasons. Hmm. I used to do um, a meditation service at one time on on a regular basis. And this was one of my favorite psalms to use for a meditation. So I committed mm. it to memory. It's only three verses long. It's one of sure. the four shortest psalms in, in the book. So you'll recite um, it for us? 
Yes, I would like to do a recitation. I hope I remember. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And do it justice. And uh, I can say after I do it, what I loved about it, it won't seem to have anything to do with Christmas to begin with. That's great. Uh, but just let it wash over you and, and then we'll, we'll talk. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That's it. So those Mm. first two verses... You can see how they go in a meditation. Usually in the meditation, I would skip that third verse because uh, I couldn't quite see how it fit together with the rest of the psalm mm-hmm. about Israel hoping the Lord from this time forth and forever. But that I don't know where else in Scripture there, there are lots of passages that deal with anxiety or stress or things like that. But I don't know. There's such a beautiful kind of peace in that psalm. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Um, But it was only recently that I thought to actually go through Swedenborg's pages and look for any clues as to what this psalm means. And Swedenborg does deal with it a few times. Hmm. And this is where Christmas comes in a little bit. But first of all, um, just that image of a weaned child is what I want to focus on. Uh, it's very interesting. This psalm opens with just this thought of like, I, I'm not thinking about stuff that's way over my head. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just co- kind of settled down. Uh, mm. It's very present kind of feeling. And so I was picturing, you know, when you picture Mary with the baby Jesus or those kind of peaceful, innocent scenes that you see at, at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and yet this is a little older child because this is a weaned child. Right. Uh, in other words, you'd have a nursing infant that's even younger, and then there's some point at which they're, they're weaned, and they're not dependent on their mother in that same way. And interestingly, what Swedenborg says about this psalm is that that mother, uh, somewhat unusually in Swedenborg's explanations of these kind of things, the mother actually stands for the divine itself uh, for God mm-hmm. uh, in what in the New Testament would usually be called the father right? <laughs> uh, instead of the mother. This time it's the mother, yeah. Yeah, it's the mother. And so that child is um, Jesus. Swedenborg says that, mm. and, and you see that in Luke 24 and other places, that all of the Old Testament is inwardly, about the life of Jesus and what he went through and so on. So this right. is a psalm. It's explicitly called a psalm of David, and it's one of the song of ascents, hmm. uh, which some scholars think was something that people would kind of sing or recite. Three times a year they had to go up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on a mountain about 2,500 feet high, and so whichever direction you came from, you'd have to go up. <laughs> and so they think maybe these were things that people would chant as they were going up for the festivals uh, three mm. times a year. And um, and Swedenborg says the figure of David itself 
you know, refers to Jesus. And you can see this quite easily when you read Scripture. Right, right. Many things are attributed to David and his kingdom being set up forever and things like that that are literally hard to defend. But if you <laughs> see it in that light, it starts to make sense. And so the wean child is like originally when uh, God was born in human form, uh, Swedenborg says he started out like any other child. Right. Uh, did not burst into the world, you know, speaking wisdom and doing miracles or whatever. He, uh, you know, he had he to had develop. To yeah. Learn everything. He, he he went through the same process we went through. He seemed to have gone through it more quickly. So at the age of twelve, he was able to, you know, kind of run circles around the teachers in Jerusalem and everything. Mm-hmm. But but he still had to go through that same order that we we go through, and. Um, so for the first while, that outer self, you know, that earthly manifestation, that child, was dependent on that quote-unquote mother of the divine for the, for the love, the insight, uh, and so on, compassion. Hmm. All that had to come. He needed to be nursed, in effect, you know, to be fed that uh, those qualities, because to begin with, he was just kind of an empty slate. You know, mm-hmm. he had a divine soul inside, but that child had to go through all the same developmental stages that we go through. And so when he was weaned, quote unquote, was when he no longer needed to get those qualities from God because they'd been worked in. Mm. He'd he he had enough nourishment from that source that now he has that it it's it's internalized it's become yeah. part of his being so he's becoming an embodiment of that passion and and truth he's he's a vessel for that and he's received enough of that that now he is that in his own right hmm. and after the crucifixion when he's resurrected he he is Absolutely one with God, indistinguishable, you know. Yeah. Um, So the image of the wean child is this child that can be so peaceful with the mother because sometimes nursing children, in in my distant experience, are a a little desperate, you know. Yes. I'm having memories of being scratched quite a lot. (laughs) Yes, that's right. There's a little, come on, come on. I need it. Give me. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Come on. But the weaned child can just sit there like in in total peace. Hmm. The child is able to fend for itself in terms of getting some food, just likes to be with the mother. Yeah. Wow. So that image of, um, and so how it ties in with that third verse is that, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever, is that that's about Israel actually meaning people all over the world of whatever religion who are connecting with God and that this is the the face of God. This is God made visible. You know, God dwells in this inaccessible light, as we read in the scriptures. And so this made him visible. And so who we're supposed to look to now mm. is that wean child. In other words, the, the child that became one with the divine love and the divine wisdom uh, doesn't need to get that from the 
quote-unquote parent anymore in the same way. And Swedenborg talks about the tremendous peace. This is more of an Easter thought, but Mm -hmm. the peace that resulted when the divine and the human came together. Um, It's an amazing thought that transcends our understanding. But you see a little inkling of that peace at at Christmas when you see those images of, of the baby with the mother and there's a peace and an innocence. And I think inwardly, this psalm that seems to have nothing to do with Christmas, it's never read as far as I know at Christmas yeah. time. But uh, inwardly, Swedenborg says it has something to do with that feeling of like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Mm. You know, the divine is more present than ever now. And, and we're going to be all right. I love that. I feel like I'm going to have such a different, you know, when I see those images of of Jesus with Mary, it's going to bring up this memory of this psalm because I love that picture of like this mother divine being beside a child who can kind of sit up on its own. You know, that's often how, you know, sometimes Jesus is pictured right. a little older when like the three wise men come or whatever. There's that's like right. that, this sort of child that has its own presence and it's, and of course, even more as the Lord grew up, that became more and more true. But I love that uh, that idea of that connection and then the Lord being able to embody that or, you know, went through that process, that struggle that has to happen, but then really absorbed and, you know, uh, like you say, embodied that the love and wisdom that he was receiving. So, And one of the things that I love about Swedenborg's works is that uh, – you can take even a scripture that you know well that you've committed to memory and is a familiar friend and still see it in this kind of mind-blowing new light. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't get tired of it. I love yes. that kind of transformation that happens when you dig in and you chew on it for a bit and then you have to uh, sit with it for a while and meditate and then this light starts to pour out of it. Mm. Wow. Well, this that's such a wonderful Christmas message. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And I guess shall we move on now to see where Swedenborg was this this week at Christmas time? In yeah, history? how about Swedenborg's Christmas? Yeah, let's talk about that. All right. All right. Hey, Curtis and Jonathan. Hello. Hey there. Hey. So This week, in the year 1749, the readers of the London Daily Advertiser, when they picked up their paper on none other than Christmas Day, they would have seen this following note from Swedenborg's publisher, John Lewis. Oh, Mom, you got me the London Daily thingy for Christmas. (laughs) I thought I was going to get a train. I was wondering who is who you know who was going out and making sure they picked up their London Daily Advertiser on Christmas Day. But Christmas Day, that's it's right. a little late to get the whatever it's advertising as a present. That's true. Well, here's what they're advertising. John Lewis says, "If you'll include the following letter in your paper, it may induce the curious in the learned world to peruse a work very entertaining and pleasant." And then the full. This is on the front page is this letter from Stephen Penny 
who is enthusiastically praising the first volume of Secrets of Heaven, which he heard about and purchased and read and devoured. And we discussed his letter in episode 12 of the podcast, um, actually. So, so we people have heard a little bit about Stephen Penny there because he wrote this letter back in October 15th and he's writing from Dartmouth, England. And he sent the letter and then John Lewis goes ahead and is like, I'm going to put this as its own advertisement for Secrets of Heaven. And he um, gets it into the London Daily Advertiser for Christmas Day, which feels very momentous. And uh, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's this one excerpt that I thought I'd share with you guys, which will give you just a sense of his enthusiasm. So here's what he says. I have long ardently wished to see the historical part of the Old Testament, which seems only to regard the Jewish dispensation, and upon that account is too lightly regarded by the major part of the present Christian world, proved to be as delightful, instructive, and as necessary for the knowledge of Christians as the new. This Arcana Celestia gives me the fullest satisfaction. Um, But the illumined author, whoever he is, is it Mr. Law? must expect a considerable army of grown men to draw their pens against him. Tis a blessing their power is prescribed within impassable bounds. So that's pretty daunting. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, really interesting. First of all, one thing worth commenting on to me is that uh, (laughs) um, it's, I'm sorry for making a joke about it, but it's a little bit, you know, like they have those cake disasters and stuff. Yes. And where it (laughs) said, no, I said it's spelled with an E or something, you know, and they write it right on the cake. And um, it was interesting that they printed right in the paper, dear sir, please publish this in the paper as it, you know. Yes, right. They print that right on the front page of the paper, which is interesting. And also, what were those words? Pleasant and entertaining? Yes, he says very entertaining and pleasant. Entertaining and pleasant. If yes. I could, I was very interested. And, and Stephen Penny, that's Lewis's comment. And then Stephen Penny also uses that same, does he use that same word? Yeah, right. Uh, delightful, he says. Delightful, delightful. and instructive. If there's any three words that universally describe early volumes of Arcana Celestia, (laughs) pleasant, (laughs) entertaining, entertaining, delightful, delightful. (laughs) It's really interesting to to think about. um, And and the timing is interesting to me because uh, Secrets of Heaven was published in September 1749. I don't know exactly what part of the month. Yeah. But already by October 15th, Stephen Penny saw the ad that was in the local paper, sent away for a copy. Yes, got it. Got it in the mail, mm-hmm. read the whole thing, like 500 plus pages in Latin, <laughs> and was already ready to write a letter about it by October 15th. That seems pretty good. Yes, it does. And I love that he... So that he, you know, he says, well, first of all, it's, you know, that Swedenborg is publishing anonymously. So that's why he's like, whoever this illumined author is, and he guesses that it's Mr. Law, which I want to talk a little bit about too. But I love that he says that, 
you know, he's like, oh, you're going to have an army of people coming after you. I guess, you know, it's a good thing you're anonymous. <laughs> so I love that he anticipates that with the content of Secrets of Heaven, that it goes against the grain of the, you know, Christian theology of the day. And I really like, since this is in a way the first known instance of a response. You yes, know? it is, right? Yep. I, 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 there's none earlier that I know of. Um, he responds on the basis of something he was already thinking. I, th- I think that's so interesting. Like just yeah. even the title he said was very intriguing. Doesn't he say something like that in it? Yeah, he does in an early, in the earlier part of the letter. Yeah, which I didn't read, but yes. Odd even. I think he uses the word odd. Yeah, it's an odd, odd yeah, title. The oddness of the title just <laughs> caught my eye. And he's already been walking around thinking, you know, people are very focused on the epistles of Paul. They're focused on the Gospels, the book of Revelation. People yeah. aren't paying enough attention to the Old Testament, frankly. You know, that, it seems yes. irrelevant to people, and something should be done about that. And then here comes this book. It's like, this is it. This is what <laughs> I'm talking about. That is so true. And it it actually reflects. So, so yeah, he obviously has some exposure to this guy, um, Mr. Law, who he's referencing, William Law. And he's an interesting character. He was... He's a contemporary of Swedenborg's, was born just a couple of years before Swedenborg and then had a shorter life than Swedenborg did. Um, But he was a priest and he wrote, but he took a sort of uh, mystical or like a mystic approach to, to Christianity. And he would write about Christian ethics and mysticism. Um, and two of his most well-known works, William Laws, were a practical treatise upon Christian perfection and then a serious call to a devout and holy life. And so this guy taking, it's a little like counter counterculture uh, to begin with William Laws writings. And, um, and so to know that Stephen Penny had exposure to that and then already was himself thinking of like, oh yeah, I want somebody to, you know, really grapple with the the old testament because there's a lot of value there and um so then he gets set up great you know perfectly to receive this book and get excited about it and another guy interestingly is that he uh john clues was a reader of william law and john clues people probably maybe haven't heard his name before but he was an early receiver of swedenborg's works but unlike stephen penny he didn't get them until he was, until Swedenborg had died, just a couple years after, or even like the following year or something. But so the first work John Clues read of Swedenborg's was True Christianity. John Clues wrote a memoir, and he even writes that William Law, he was a stepping stone that prepared him for receiving Swedenborg's ideas. Um, and one way he puts it in his memoir is that like, what he read in William Law was like, you know, a candle to get you through the night, but then you don't need that candle anymore once the sun rises. And that's what he just felt like what Swedenborg's, you know, the theology in his works was to him, was like the sun rising in his mind. Um, it's a warm-up band. Exactly. And uh, and so it's so interesting that both of these people, that William Law, this guy, you know, this Christian mystic and author was... Uh, sort of that stepping stone for a number of people to Swedenborg's works. One difference that I find so fascinating is like uh, John Clues was 
you know, picked up Swedenborg after Swedenborg had written all of his books, you know, so he got exposure to true Christianity and then had all the other, all these other books. And he ended up, he was a priest in the Church of England and ended up being a translator of all or most of Swedenborg's works and spread the ideas of the new church in England um, enormously, was a huge force for that. Um, But in Stephen Penny's case, I love that he's a guy who's getting it hot off the press and he writes in his letter that he wants to know when the next volumes are going to come out because he doesn't want to miss any of them. Um, and and it really makes me wonder, like, did Stephen Penny stick it out for, you know, the rest of Swedenborg's days? Like, I wonder if he got to read, you know, like, it, it's super fun when you have an author that you love that you can't wait till their next book comes out, you know? <laughs> and like, so did he keep tabs on on these these books, uh, even though Swedenborg was publishing anonymously. I really wonder about that. Well, can you imagine? I mean, I've talked to people that believe it or not, there are some people in this world old enough, old enough that they know what it was like when the next Beatles album came out. Oh, that right. new, the, the Beatles released new music here. I, I know there's none of those in present company, but <laughs> think about if you truly loved Swedenborg's material and saw it as if it was really the the noonday sun to you. Can you imagine like when the next one comes out? That must have been so, it was this time you know, to most of the world, it was a total non-event, but I'm sure to like a core, a diehard core of who knows, eight people, six people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was the absolute coolest thing that could happen. I mean, they would feel like I would feel if we discovered a lost manuscript. Yes. That's think, great. Yeah. And and Stephen Penny, almost to put it in modern language, wanted to get notifications. You know, he wanted right, right something to buzz on his phone when the when the latest volume. You know, yeah. Let me know. Let me know because I'm interested. I love that. It's so so fun. And I, you know, who knows? I'd have to do some, you know, historical research and digging to see if you could find any more information about Stephen Penny and how long he lived and, you know, how many of book, Swedenborg's books could he have gotten exposure to? But. Uh, Super fun. And I can only imagine, I don't know if Swedenborg got a copy of this London Daily Advertiser, but perhaps John Lewis sent one to him or something. But I bet it was a very happy Christmas for Swedenborg that year. All right. Well, thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. It is always a pleasure to talk to you both. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas to all. And (laughs) to all something, something clever. Yeah, I hope I hope everyone listening has a wonderful holiday season. And I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next year inside Off the Left Eye. I hope your spirit was warmed and uplifted by this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offtheleftye.com. If you want to go the extra mile, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review, which helps others find the show. Thank you so much to everyone who has already done so. And you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we wish that your holidays be blessed with peace and joy. (laughs) 